0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro.
1: This week, the U.S. and Iran reached a major deal. They exchanged prisoners. Iran released five U.S. citizens, and the U.S. freed five Iranians. The Biden administration also lifted a block on $6 billion in frozen Iranian oil funds, all part of a diplomatic push to thaw relations between the two countries. But Iran is in another big moment. One year ago, protests erupted across the country. People chanted, Woman, Life, Freedom, and Death to the Dictator. The demonstrations were massive in the streets, in universities. They were the most widespread protests in the Islamic Republic's 44 year history. The government cracked down hard. Still, people kept risking everything, calling for women's rights, better economic conditions, for regime change. People like Javad Heydari.
0: Javad was a brother. He was very close to his family. Nilou
1: Tabrizi is a visual forensics reporter for The Post.
0: He's been described to me as having a lively personality. There's a video that was shared of him dancing and and just being joyful. And being a regular person, I think a lot of Iranians can see themselves and their siblings in Javad.
1: Since these protests erupted a year ago, Nilu has been following the stories of regular Iranians who took to the streets and their families, including Javad's.
0: He's from Ghazvin. He was out protesting. And he was killed by security forces in the early weeks of the protest in September 2022. Traditionally, um, if you were killed by the state, families were under so much pressure to keep quiet that they would, you know, not ever publicize the funeral. Or, or sometimes they didn't have to sign a piece of paper saying that this person died from a heart attack and not, not by violence from state forces in order to get the body back from security forces.
1: Nilu has been talking with Javad's sister, Fatima, about what the family did do and what happened after.
0: What the Haydari family did was a revolutionary act. There was a video that was broadcast live of the funeral. And it showed Fatima weeping over his casket and cutting her hair. Fatima, what was going through your head in that moment? And she said it was a day that was a blur. And she just felt really strongly that she wanted to film the funeral, that she wanted to broadcast it, that she wanted to cut her hair. It went viral very quickly because of, you know, not only was it publicizing the grief and publicizing the fact that he was killed by the state, but also her cutting her hair over the casket was in line with the very very early moment of the movement. It really encapsulated the protests and it really showed the bravery of Fatima. Almost immediately, the family was under pressure. She was very emotional when we had these conversations. She told me that, you know, their family home was raided and surveilled. She's posted videos on Instagram that show police cars kind of driving on the street by their home. Almost immediately, she was summoned by the Ministry of Intelligence, and her father was summoned, and they were pressured to say, you know, say that Fatima made a mistake and and just say that she was sad. They were pressured almost immediately to, to lie about the funeral. They were also pressured almost immediately to lie about what happened to her brother.
1: The pressure hasn't stopped. And it's extended well beyond Fatima's immediate family.
0: She said even people that attended a mourning ceremony for her brother, they were picked up by security forces. It was clear that the mourning ceremonies were surveilled. Um, One of her family members, who's a nurse, uh, was, was fired from her job and questioned why did Javad engage in the protests. It's almost, if you think about it, it's kind of like, an octopus with these many arms and legs. Like, they kind of go after anyone who's close to the family.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. It's Wednesday, September 20th. Today, my colleague Alahe Izadi speaks with Nilu Tabrizi about what's happened to Iranians one year after massive protests began. We hear from family members impacted by the government's crackdown and learn how the country's repression playbook works.
2: So, Nilu, you have been reporting on what has been happening to family members of people inside of Iran who joined the protests there, people like Fatima Hedari and also their relatives who live outside of Iran. And this is all, you know, taking place. We've now just passed a year anniversary of when these protests started out. Can you just remind us, let's, let's go back to that moment of why these protests began and
0: also what made them so distinct? So these protests were sparked uh, by the death of Masajina Amini while she was in the custody of the morality police.
1: Masajina Amini was taken into custody by Iran's morality police who enforced strict hijab rules.
0: Masajina is a Kurdish-Iranian woman who was visiting Tehran. She was detained under the so-called hijab rule for an improper hijab. Now, we don't have any visual evidence or any evidence of what happened to her in custody. But what we do have is we saw an image of her um, laying unconscious in a hospital bed with tubes in her face. Uh, Her face is swollen. She has dried blood on her ears. It, It looked as if she was beaten. And that image is what incensed Iranians.
3: Amini's name has become synonymous with a movement that is posing the biggest threat to the Iranian regime in years.
0: This protest also felt different for me as an observer. I've been watching and reporting on Iran since 2017. For me, I saw that this protest quickly turned to be anti-government and to call down for the regime. Yes, you know, we heard the chants of Zan Zendigi, Azadi, women, life, freedom, that have come to define this. And all at the same time, we heard these chants of Bar Jomhur Islami, Death to the Islamic Republic." Happen almost in tandem, and we heard these chants not just in Tehran or in Kurdistan, but we heard these chants in places like Qom and Mashhad, that are religious cities that have been historically aligned with the regime. And these protests were widespread in terms of class. So just seeing all the different sectors of of society involved, I think, was was different for me as an observer. Analysts have said this is the largest and most widespread movement in the Islamic Republic's, you know, 44-year history.
2: And Nilu, can you tell me a little bit more about why people were protesting? What was beneath the surface beyond the immediate
0: outrage of this one woman's death? I asked that question um, to people that I interviewed for the story. I think Iranians have have been expressing their dissatisfaction with the Islamic Republic for years, and and this this goes back. Right, we can look back at the two thousand nine green movement where Iranians were saying, this election is rigged, where is my vote? Leaving Iran is very difficult. You need a visa to leave. If you're, if you're a man and you don't do your mandatory military service, you can't leave the country. The state of the economy has been absolutely dismal in Iran. There's a high youth unemployment rate, and there has been for a long time. And so you kind of have this picture of a country where people are stuck So in the years since these protests first began, Nilu, I know that you have
2: been spending time talking with and hearing more from the family members of people who have been protesting and people who had been killed to learn about what they've gone through. Can you tell me a little bit about one of those people, Hiwa Pori? who is he and his family?
0: Hiwa Puri is 31 years old. Um, His family is from Mahabad, which is a city in the Kurdish region of of Iran. And he's a member of a minority ethnic group. Um, In Iran, there are a number of ethnic and religious minorities who all live within one border. Um, Hiwa himself had to leave Iran. Um, He was forced out of Iran because he was um, a political activist, you know, fighting for the Kurdish cause. So he left Iran, but who, who did he leave behind? Yeah, Hewa left his entire family behind. So he left his brother Azad behind, who he said is one of his best friends. Mm. And um, they're very close in age. He says that, you know, we grew up together since childhood. We worked, played, slept, went to school together, and he was my brother and best friend, so they were, they were very close. Mm. So what happened when the
2: protest started, and what did he tell you about Azad?
0: When the protests started, Hiwa was watching from afar like many of us were, and he said that, you know, his brother was quick to get involved. Um, He said that in the past, Azad had been involved in other anti-government, pro-Kurdish protests, but Azad shared with him that this time it was different. Hiwa said, you know, I got the sense that Azad was more serious. He said, my brother was a dentist and had a simple life. He wanted freedom. He went to the street to defend his right. And he said that he, in the protests, you know, not only was he chanting and being a part of the street protest, but he was there almost like a medic. So he would transport injured people to a safe place and he would treat them. In our conversation, uh, Hiwa kept saying to me that my brother loved freedom. Freedom was his main motivator. And and I just want to mention that his name, Azad, translates to freedom. What happened to Azad? So, um, Hiwa told me that Azad was killed and systematically assassinated at night on November 17th during anti-government protests in Mahabad. Hiwa said that his brother was shot, um, and eyewitnesses had told him that he was shot at a close distance. Mm. Um, I wasn't able to independently verify this account because it wasn't captured on any video that was shared. So this is everything that he was telling me based on his friends and family relaying the information and who he says are eyewitnesses that saw what happened to his brother, Azad.
2: You know, staying with, with this story of what happened to Azad, what then happened to
0: Azad and Hiwa's family so Azad and Hiwa's family, they were, you know, almost immediately surveilled and put under pressure by security and intelligence forces. So Hiwa told me that his family in Mahabad was followed everywhere, um, that, you know, the security forces were, and intelligence forces were taking pictures of them. And he even had his sister's brother, his brother-in-law, his 80-year-old father summoned by the, you know, the Ministry of Intelligence – to go in there for interrogations.
3: To...
0: Their phones were confiscated, their passports were taken, and they were threatened with prisoner death. They were threatened to not go out on the streets, and he said this pressure has increased as the anniversary of Masajina's Emmanuel's death got closer. Mm. Kiwa told me that they can't even visit Azad's grave. you know they were dissuaded from that. Uh, they were banned from saying anything or even being on social media. and he said that one of his sisters has been um, is suffering through depression because of this and anxiety attacks uh, due to this pressure
3: And he said his mother's had
0: two heart attacks during this time. Mm, wow. And what about Hiwa himself? What
2: has this experience all been like for him watching
0: from afar? So, Hiwa refers to his brother as a, as a martyr, and he feels really passionate about that. His brother died for the cause. So, he told me that since he knew, heard the news of his martyrdom, uh, you know, Hiwa started having panic attacks. He said just being far away and and hearing this news just made him feel so
3: desperate. <laughs>
0: He said all of his hair turned white from grief and all the pressure he's gone through these past few months. And he's just suffered an immense amount of pain. Um, and he's forced to kind of watch from the outside looking in. And given all the pressures his family has been under, he knows that if he returns, a similar fate awaits him, right? So he's, he's going to be stuck dealing with this and, and watching and trying to process this grief from thousands of miles away.
1: After the break, we hear more about Iran's systematic crackdown on dissent and its unintended consequences. We'll be right back.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash ITHeroes. The
2: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Nilu, when you look at what's happened to people like Hiwa and his family, I mean, here you have a situation where family inside of Iran is killed and then there's death threats or repression or other sorts of pressure put on them and then you have someone abroad. How common is that for people and the others you've spoke to? Is this part of a broader pattern or tactic on the behalf of the government of Iran right now?
0: You know, the Iranian government is really good at suppressing its own people and they've established themselves to be this security state right they're they're incredibly good at monitoring people's social media monitoring people's movements knowing where everybody is and so they pressure people that have been involved in protests or even the families of these people or even the acquaintances. As I learned through these interviews, they'll arbitrarily arrest and detain family members who maybe even weren't at the protests. They'll seize their cell phones. They'll seize their passports. um, They'll surveil their homes. It's just there's these different ways in which they'll try to intimidate people into silence and, and scare them from taking any type of action against the state. And so even looking at cases of people that I didn't speak to, this is widespread. This is really a systematic feature of the government's playbook to suppress protests and to suppress um, anti-government movements.
2: And are there any particular features of how that repression looks like, like certain things that they especially crack down on to prevent more protests from happening?
0: Yeah, I think that that the government understands the power of grief and how powerful that can be to move people even if we look at how the Islamic Republic came to be, I mean a turning point for them in the pre-revolutionary period was when one of their own clerics was killed in a car accident that people very quickly knew, oh, actually, this was orchestrated by the Shah's government. Um, And they seized on that grief. They had a big public uh, outpouring of grief, and that really changed things. I think they understand the power of grief and how it can bring people out. So they systematically do target the families and friends of, you know, martyrs of people who have been killed by the state during protests. And so that's why they crack down on funerals and that's why they they go after he was family Mm -hmm. um and as well like if if a family is so brave to hold a public funeral um as we saw with the case of fatima hedari uh security forces will show up and and surveil it you know they'll take photos of license plates they'll take photos of people that were there so that they can go after them after the fact I think they're conscious, too, of where Iranians are. Iranians in the country, they're online, right? They're on Instagram, they're on Telegram, they're organizing in these spaces. So it makes sense to think about that in the context of HIWA, why they seize their family's cell phones, why they banned them from going on social media and took all their apps off their phones, because they they understand the power of that. They understand the power of the connection, and they're scared of that. You
2: know, hearing you describe this playbook, what strikes me is it kind of makes sense if we're looking from afar and it seems like things are quieter there Mm -hmm. since these protests first erupted. Is it fair to say that it appears to be quiet in some ways because there is this repression to precisely, you know, tamp down this public grief and mourning?
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just because there's no street protests right now doesn't mean that the movement has died out or that people are okay with the Islamic Republic. If the Iranian security state is caught off guard, that's when these protests and movements grow. I don't think they expected that the spark that massaging Zamini's death, what it would turn into in the country. So they were kind of caught off guard for that. They have been absolutely um, really conscious of the anniversary. Mm. You know, days ago, Massa's uncle uh, was arrested. Members of her family have been detained. You know, they've, you know, released some of protesters on amnesty. And just recently this summer, maybe a couple months ago, they've grabbed people that they have released and taken them back to jail. So, you know, they're they're starting that crackdown and they've been paving that. And so if you don't see people in the streets, it's not because— you know they're satisfied with their system it's because the repression is just really really good they're really good at doing that do we know
2: how many people have died during these protests and how many people were arrested like how widespread was this crackdown and if we measure it that
0: way so any official statistics are really difficult Uh, To gather from Iran. So we rely on um, different organizations uh, and activist groups because they will have the best pulse, but it's not something that we can independently verify. So some of the best estimates are um, at least 530 people have been killed in this past year. That could be an undercount given how difficult it is to gather information in Iran. In March of this year, uh, Iran announced that it was going to pardon 22,000 people arrested. So that can give us a window into how many people they arrested if they're pardoning 22,000 of them. Um, That's at least one number that's self-reported by the government that we can look at. and, And then we can estimate that that's absolutely an undercount.
2: Yeah, because there's probably a lot more people who were not pardoned.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I would
2: imagine it's even harder to quantify... A level of harassment that does not
0: rise to an arrest level, let alone people being disappeared. Absolutely. This type of data is really difficult to come by. I've reached out to different human rights observers and groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch that document this and, um, and more local groups as well. And they say that's a really hard number to quantify. Nilu,
2: did you try to get an official comment from the Iranian government?
0: Yes, I reached out to um, a spokesman for Iran's mission to the United Nations in New York, and they didn't get back to me. So with Fatima, who we learned
2: about her story at the beginning of this episode, she's inside of Iran. She cut her hair at her brother's grave. Have you heard from her lately?
0: Yeah, I've been in regular contact with Fatima. Um She's under a lot of pressure because her family, because of how viral that moment was, because of the way her family home has been surveilled and the way in which the security state has picked up so many of of her family members and and acquaintances, Um, the family has been forced to live in hiding and keep a low profile. Mm. And yet she's still vocal on Instagram and on Twitter and to kind of keep uh, the memory of what happened to Javad alive and to keep being vocal about that injustice. So given that we are at
2: this one year anniversary of Masa Amini's death and given what you've heard from these families and you've documented this playbook, this tactic, this strategy on behalf of the Iranian government, what do you think this tells us about their success or not in cracking down on these protests and also on people's ability and efforts to force
0: change? I think what the Islamic Republic maybe doesn't think about is the way that these events can compound onto each other. And we can see that just looking at previous protests, right? Like, you can see that the anti-government chants happen much quicker. Something that becomes a small issue becomes completely calling for the downfall of, of the regime immediately. And especially when we think about grieving families, you know, perhaps this crackdown might have an unintended effect. They might think that they're cracking down and silencing these families, but maybe what they're not thinking about is how this grief can unite these families together and maybe sow the seeds for something in the future. I think just something that has been really interesting to observe for me is in previous protest rounds, it's always been hard to find eyewitnesses, talk to people because of the pressures from the from the state. But this time I just, I really got the sense and, and sources have told me, you know, we have nothing to lose. Hmm. Like there's this extreme bravery and, and this risk that people are willing to take. So people are willing to hold public funerals when they're told they're not supposed to. They're protesting when they know it's a huge risk. They're sending videos to journalists like me and others when they know that just communicating with us itself um, is something that the state would, punish them for. You know, this grief really does unite people. And maybe that's something they don't think about when they're repressing these families.
2: Yeah. And I also wonder about for someone like Hiwa, whose family
0: has gone through so much, how has this repression impacted his resolve? I mean, he's always been against the government, but I think now that his brother was killed and seeing how his family was affected, I mean, this is a really clear example he can point to, to say, this system is not reformable, there's no place for me as a Kurdish political activist to live safely, and there's certainly no place for the rest of my family.
3: Kiwa
0: <inaudible> told me, all I can say is, is that I hope all of the Iranian people will live free and will not be captive to a regime like the Islamic Republic. He's really showing this cross-ethnic solidarity that we've seen in this movement where people who have been historically repressed by the Islamic Republic are seeing a moment of connection with each other and he wants freedom for everybody and that freedom for him is inclusive.
2: Thank you, Nilu, so much for taking time to share your reporting with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Nilu Tabrizi is a visual forensics reporter for The Post. This episode was produced by Alana Gordon. It was edited by Monica Campbell and mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks to Jesse Mesner-Hage. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.